many bottles of this wine we can't pronounce. Too many bowls of that green, no lucky charms. The maids come around too much. Parents ain't around enough. Too many joy rides in daddy's Jaguar. Too many white lies in white lines. Super rich kids with nothing but loose ends. Super rich kids with nothing but fake friends. Start my day Hello everyone, welcome to the first ever edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm Ethan Hammerman, and I'm really, really excited to be here. I've been sort of mulling this idea over for a super long time, and I think this is going to be a great opportunity for us to talk about all types of stuff. This is sort of an open forum for us to discuss Sports, society, and whatever randomness comes to mind. So I just, before I get into my first ever guest, I just wanted to give a quick rundown of how this podcast is going to work. So every podcast is going to be divided into three different categories. The first category is going to be sports because everyone who's on this podcast, the one rule is that you have to like sports or at least care about sports in some way. If you're going to be apathetic, not be a fan of something, you're not going to be a guest on this podcast. You can still listen. We'd love it for you to listen to this podcast, but you might not be a guest just because we do want to talk sports here. That's sort of what really brings us all together. And that's sort of why I wanted to make this because I was inspired looking at a whole bunch of the people who I follow on Twitter, the people who follow me on Twitter, uh, the people who follow me on other types of social media. And I noticed that the old mantra of sticks to sports, it doesn't work anymore. We all care about so many things other than sports that I want to create a space where we can talk about sports and other things as well. Uh, so the second part of this podcast is going to be society. We're going to talk about something that whoever my guest is or myself is passionate about, and it can be social justice. It could be sort of about your own unique experience. I'm looking for a variety of diverse perspectives uh, that people are willing to share and willing to talk about. So that's sort of going to be the second part of the podcast, and the third part is going to be called the stuff part, where we talk about whatever people are passionate about. It could be music, it could be bug collecting, it could be any number of things. I don't know what weird hobbies you have. You might want to build model planes, or if you're Kurt Schilling, you might collect Nazi memorabilia. But I don't think Kurt Schilling is going to be a guest of this podcast anytime soon, so I don't think we need to worry about that. So if you're listening and you only want to listen to the sports section of the podcast, or you only want to listen to the society section of the podcast, or you want to listen to two sections, not the other one, that is not a problem. In the notes section, when I post this, I'll note exactly when each section begins. So you're able to jump wherever you want and listen to whatever you want. This really is a podcast of the people. And again, this is my first ever time doing this podcast, so if you have any suggestions of how it could be better, if you have any thoughts about guests I could have, if you want to be a guest, feel free to let me know, DM me, uh, just leave a comment on my Twitter, I'll be happy to talk to you. And it's at Ethan Ham for my Twitter, by the way, in case you didn't know. So now I'm going to get to introduce the first ever guest, a good friend of mine, a definite person who has a lot to say and really has found his voice in the past year and the past couple of years as well. 
Ben Natan is here with me. Ben, how are you doing tonight? I'm, I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much. So, Ben, why don't you tell the people about yourself super quick? So, I am 19 years old. I'm a sophomore at New York University. I study acting and politics. And I write for BleedingGreenNation.com. I'm their lead draft writer. So, I spend a lot of my time, a lot of my free time, uh, watching college football and evaluating college football prospects to see how they translate to the NFL. And I cover them for Eagles-specific football. I've been an Eagles fan my whole life. I'm from Philadelphia, and they hurt me, but I stick with them. (laughs) So, yeah, this is actually a perfect segue into the first part of this podcast, the sports section part of this podcast, because tonight we're going to talk about the Philadelphia teams, specifically the Eagles, but we're also going to cover off from the 76ers as well, given recent news. (laughs) So it's going to be fun. So, Ben, let's talk about the Eagles. So... We actually went to an Eagles preseason game this year. We saw them play the Colts, and they destroyed the Colts in that game. Now, granted, you know, it's the preseason, and Chip Kelly's been pretty good in the preseason, if I recall correctly, and, you know, Andrew Luck played in that game, and actually pretty realistically looked bad in that game, if I recall correctly. Uh, But, you know, none of the good players were playing. It was a pretty mediocre group overall. But... I will say, coming out of the preseason, like I thought the Eagles were going to be pretty good. Uh, you saw the front seven. You saw the offense. There's a lot of potency there. Why do they suck? I think that it really all goes back to the quarterback position, and that's such a cop-out. But when you look at the quarterback's impact on the offense and then the offense's impact on the whole team, it really makes a lot of sense because what you had for the beginning of the season was you had Sam Bradford coming in, Hadn't played for a year and a half, and when you haven't played football for a year and a half, especially coming off a serious knee injury, there's going to be a lot of mental and physical rust, which he had to work through, and while Hugh is working through that, the offense wasn't able to move correctly, and due to the high-tempo nature of the offense, these the offense was coming on, going three and out, coming off, and the defense was incredibly talented and was able to really keep the Eagles in games for a good part of the first uh, first half of the season just because of how talented they were and how well-conditioned they were. Uh, and the Eagles were kind of able to hold together over the first half of the season. But actually, when Sam Bradford started to get into a rhythm, uh, he had a three-game streak where he actually looked really good. And unfortunately, it, ironically, it culminated in him getting injured. Uh, against the Miami Dolphins, and Mark Sanchez came in to replace him. And the offense went backwards. It went back to that stagnant offense. I was going three and out very, very quickly, and then putting all the pressure again on the defense. And when you put that pressure on the defense, when the defense is on the field for so many snaps, and so many more snaps than the rest of the league, it's a war of attrition. And it eventually caught up with them. You saw it in the Tampa Bay game, where the defense was just physically beaten down because of the first eight games of the season, And they let up big runs, they let up big plays in the passing game, and that happened in the Detroit game as well. And it's going to continue to happen because the defense is just gassed and the offense can't find any kind of consistency because of the quarterback position. And it's just a mess. We're going to stick with the quarterbacks, actually. So you would say that this year, for you, Sam Bradford has been better than Mark Sanchez. Yeah, absolutely. And I was critical of Bradford when the Eagles traded for him, and I was critical of Bradford at the beginning of the season. But after the, I want to say the Carolina game was his first good game, even though they lost. And then he put together a string of really nice games before eventually getting hurt in the Miami game. So there was lots of reasons to get excited about him. 
But I think because of his injury proneness or just his injury history over the course of his career, I wouldn't be comfortable sticking with him long term. I think this year was kind of a prove it, prove you can stay healthy for a year kind of year, and, and he hasn't he didn't prove it. So I would be uncomfortable sticking with him long term. So, like in your opinion, would you want Sam Bradford to be starting for the Eagles in 2016? And do you think he's going to be starting for the Eagles in 2016? I don't want him to be starting for the Eagles in 2016 because of the injury risk. In terms of if I think he will be, I don't think so. Just because I think that the Eagles' confidence in him had a lot to do with his health. And the Eagles did actually really like him and tried to sign him in preseason, but he wanted to play on this prove-it deal. This basically what was a prove-it deal. I don't think that he's going to be back on the team. I'm trying to remain optimistic that the team's going to be aggressive in the offseason to actually get a guy in the draft. So you're an evaluator of the draft. I'm also an evaluator of the draft. I haven't seen too many quarterbacks who I've really been a fan of when I've looked throughout the prospects this year. Who do you think the Eagles will find particularly interesting? I think the Eagles will really like Paxton Lynch, uh, the Memphis quarterback, because one, he has, he's, I mean, this is a cheap thing to look at, but he's very large and, you know, no, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, yeah, exactly, yeah, but he's a very, Big individual, he's six seven. He's almost two hundred fifty pounds. He looks like a defensive end. Uh, and Chip Kelly has preached the importance of you know, size in his players. And Lynch has a really well put together build. But more importantly, his play and the system that he plays at in Memphis is not so different than what the Eagles are trying to do, where you're efficiently attacking the middle of the field but still offering a downfield threat. Uh, Lynch is actually at his best when he's attacking down the field. He's really excellent deep ball thrower, and that's something that the Eagles have really missed this year in their offenses. There's really no there's no vertical threat at all, which allows defenses to focus on the run, and it makes the running game stagnant. So Lynch's presence as a passer would allow the Eagles to stretch the field. It would open up for the run game, and then because they'd be able to move the ball more efficiently, I think that the defense would play better as well. So Lynch is the only quarterback in my opinion, who offers that complete package of arm strength and intelligence and also build while also being able to be ready as soon as he gets drafted instead of kind of being a project quarterback. And the Eagles, of course, also have some really good young receivers who sort of have been underutilized because the quarterback play has been really, really lackluster. You've got Jordan Matthews, who's been inconsistent, but he has shown that he has the ability to be really good. You have Nelson Aguilar, whose hands are a little bit suspect, but definitely he's a dynamic player. I will say one quarterback who I think sort of earlier in the year you heard some buzz about, but he sort of dropped off, but I think that the Eagles could really like him is Josh Dobbs of Tennessee, because he is a really, really smart quarterback who reminds me a little bit of Andy Dalton, the way that he sees the field. He's not going to take the most risks of a lot of quarterbacks in this class, but I do think that he has the arm strength to at least provide some vertical presence while also diagnosing under the defense. I think he's a player who earlier in the year had some buzz around him and then sort of dropped off the face of the earth probably because that Tennessee team had some issues toward the end. Yeah, and the frustrating thing about Dobbs, and I was a really big fan of him in preseason too, is that Tennessee used him a lot as a runner instead of as a passer. And while Dobbs can threaten a defense with his legs, he's much more efficient and much more dangerous when he's able to use his arm and win from the pocket. So it was some gross misutilization by the Tennessee staff to make him such a running quarterback. I don't know if he's going to declare this year because he is a Richard Jr. 
but definitely a guy to look for in the future, and I would be intrigued by him if he decided to declare. And Josh Dobbs is going to be one of the most interesting stories for me going forward because this is a guy who has majored in aerospace engineering at Tennessee, and we really are seeing how concussions are becoming such a big part of football for guys who, you know, after football might want to have careers as, say, public speakers or or something that might be a little more verbal, a little bit less cerebral. But Dobbs is a guy who has the potential to, like, be a scientist and is a brilliant, brilliant student, both on the field and off. So I, I'm going to be really intrigued to see what route he decides to go Yeah, on. and that was a similar thing last year with Lakin and Tomlinson, where Lakin was at Duke and he was a medical student at Duke. and he was, I think he was studying to be some kind of surgeon. And I remember some rumors about teams being concerned about his like dedication to football because he was really smart in other classes, which is such a frustrating dynamic. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, do you think Colin Kaepernick could come into play as well? I think he would be, if the Eagles think they have no shot at drafting their guy again, and it would just kind of be a repeat of last offseason, and they decide to go the retread route, I would I would go with Colin Kaepernick because, one, he can stretch the field with his arm. Two, he can threaten defense with his legs, which is something we really haven't seen in this offense yet, and I think could add a new dimension to it. And three, I think that he was really limited in the offense that he was in while he was in San Francisco, where you saw these flashes during his time with Harbaugh. Really, really talented, really potentially incredible quarterback, but it was kind of marred by inconsistencies, and then this year was just a mess because the offensive line was broken, the offensive scheme was gross, and while he was making mistakes on his own, the surrounding situation wasn't really conducive to his success, and a lot a lot of times with younger quarterbacks, you want to be able to support them and keep their confidence up, and nobody's confidence is going to be up when you're constantly getting rumored to be benched for Blaine Gabbert, which he eventually was. So let's say for a second that you are the general manager and possibly also the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. What would your off-season plan be in terms of any major free agent signings and your first two picks? Well, my major free agent signings would have to be something to bolster the offensive line. I think that the Eagles, in terms of their draft capital, should be thinking about their about their offensive skill positions in terms of quarterback, running back, wide receiver, because there's just been this lack of potency, which I think has come from the quarterback mostly, but definitely hasn't been helped by the overall performance of the surrounding talent. I don't think that DeMarco Murray should be on this team long-term because it just looks like that he's physically not in it anymore. Uh, you know, He had over 500 carries his last season in Dallas. I just don't think his body is out of place to be shouldering uh, a load as a starting running back. I would love to sign Kelechi Assembly away from the Ravens because he's athletic, he's big, and he's mean. And the Eagles have really lacked a, a sort of physicality on offense this year. And they need a tone setter on offense. They need a tone setter in their offensive line. And, and Assembly is the type of guy who just wants to beat the guy, uh, the defender across from him. They they need th- that toughness because there's there's no one on the Eagles' offense that really intimidates defenses, either in the trenches or at the skill position. So that would be one of my big free agent signings. And then my first two picks, you know, obviously it depends on where they're picking. But ideally, I'd try to get Paxton Lynch with that first-round pick probably going to end up in the top 10 if the Eagles stay the course for the rest of the season. And in their third-round pick, because they don't have a second-round pick because of the Sam Bradford trade, I would love to get 
a running back like Kenneth Dixon or any kind of home run threat. Because when the Eagles had Deshaun Jackson or they had Jerry Macklin or they had LaShawn McCoy, there was constantly a threat of the big play, which the team has none of this year. Uh, because all of their players are just kind of, I mean, Jordan Matthews at his best that we've seen is just like a very, very good possession receiver. Doesn't really create a lot for his own. Um, isn't really the type to blow the top off a of defense. And Nelson Aguilar is still kind of getting his feet wet. So the offense could really use another player who can kind of strike the fear of God into defense to, to make them think about that explosive play on every down, which they, the Eagles just do not have right now. So, you know, Deshaun Jackson, Deshaun McCoy, and Jeremy Macklin, all players who Chip Kelly opted to either trade away or not resign as head coach of the Eagles. Well. So, you know, <laughs> for various reasons, yeah. it's not all reasons that were necessarily they, bad reasons. They wanted Macklin to stay. They did offer him quite a bit of money, but he took a lot more money for to go to Kansas City. But I think the big thing with Chip Kelly, though, is what is the story right now with him? Because it does feel like he came out of Oregon, this really shiny coach, this offensive innovator who had won at every level and who looked really good to start in Philadelphia. I mean, this is a guy who had Nick Foles play almost a full year, and he only threw two interceptions. And we've seen Nick Foles. He got benched for Case Keenum, and honestly... He might not be better than Sean Mannion over in St. Louis either. Sean Mannion might be one of the worst quarterbacks I've ever evaluated in my entire career. So what happened between then and now that has really made his luster sort of disappear? The thing that people have to remember is that Kelly took over a 4-12 football team that was kind of destroyed by... Three straight years of really, really mediocre to poor drafting by Andy Reid. Out of the 2010 and 2011 drafts, which were both drafted by Andy Reid, the Eagles had 24 picks, and only three of those players still remain on the team right now. That's, it's bad. And uh, the team definitely had stars, obviously, with Sean McCoy, and it had Deshaun Jackson and Jerry Macklin, um, and, you know, talented offensive linemen. But it was still a very flawed football team, and Kelly got the team to massively, massively overperform in his first season. They won 10 games. Nick Foles had one of the most crazy, historic, historically efficient seasons in NFL history, which we will look back on as being incredibly strange. Uh, it's strange now. And then in the offseason, that... that following offseason, there was a power struggle in the front office where you had Howie Roseman, who was the GM who had been there with Andy Reid, and Chip Kelly, who was coming from having full control at Oregon to wanting to have full control at Philadelphia. And there was this power struggle that kind of ex- uh, exacted itself through the draft and through free agency. And the Eagles drafted Marcus Smith in the first round, who was a Howie, Howie Roseman pick and has ended up to be a complete bust. And then the Eagles also had to Alice Deshaun Jackson for lots of, I guess, like, let's just say legal purposes. It was, it, it was not, it was a toxic situation in Philadelphia with Deshaun Jackson, and he just could not be there anymore. So you had the, the second year under Kelly where the team underperformed. The defense looked a lot better than it did in his first year. The special teams looked incredible. 
the offense was stagnant because Nick Foles regressed to the mean. Nick Foles eventually got hurt. Mark Sanchez came in, and the Eagles started the season at nine and three, and then finished at ten and six to miss the playoffs. Um, and then those two straight ten and six seasons kind of hurt the team in terms of draft position because the team never really got opportunities to draft premium players, despite it initially being such a poor team that Kelly was taking over. And then now you had. Um, after that season, you had Kelly get full control, and there was only so much he could really do at that point because he wanted to get rid of Nick Foles. He had to get rid of LaShawn McCoy because of more locker room issues with McCoy. And there was only so much he could do as a 10-6 team in terms of improving the football team, and mostly by getting a quarterback because they wanted Marcus Mariota, and they offered Tennessee and Tampa Bay a host of draft picks for Marcus Mariota. But, you know, both of them had their heart set on a franchise quarterback. The Eagles couldn't do anything about that. So they traded, and the Eagles knew something that, that could happen. So they traded for Sam Bradford as a contingency plan. And a lot of the failures have come off of the mediocrity at quarterback the Eagles have had this season. But I, I honestly don't think that was an avoidable thing. I don't know what they could have done besides go with Sam Bradford. They couldn't stick with Nick Foles. He was awful last year. And um, they just shot their shot with uh, with Sam Bradford, and it didn't really work out. And it's just something that they're going to have to keep like move on from and trust in Kelly going forward. It'd be ridiculous to, to fire him after this year, though. So you think Chip is going to get the chance to redeem himself? I think he needs to have a chance to draft his quarterback. And you know, he was signed to a five year deal back in 2012 or 2013. So you just have to let that whole thing play out and just let it play through his contract. So I know there have been some rumors recently that Chip might want to go after his quarterback rather than bring his quarterback to him. He wants to go to Tennessee with Marcus Mariota. Do you think that's viable? And as an Oregon fan and an Eagles fan, what would your reaction be if he were to make that move? I think that would be really cowardly, actually. I think that and just to do something like that, where you're giving up on a situation and running away from a situation to a situation that will obviously make you look better. Um, I mean, I don't really know how to put that exactly into words. I think that'd be really cowardly, though. But at the same time, I don't think he would do that because Kelly is, like, a very, very proud person, and he's very egotistical. So that would be a huge hit to his ego. I think that he wants to fix the Eagles. I think that's, like, what he wants to do. So... You don't think it's going to happen, I'm guessing. No, I think he's going to be the Eagles coach next year. But, you know, this week we are seeing the battle of two of the most interesting characters when it comes to head coaches in football. You have the Eagles against the Patriots, my team. So, out of curiosity, and honestly, I think this game could be a little bit closer than some people expect it to be. Although, last week, I mean... The Lions are not good. No. And the Eagles got absolutely Man-handled. destroyed Man-handled. by the Lions. Yeah. But the Patriots are really beaten up. Gronk, in my opinion, shouldn't play, even if he's thinking about playing. I would honestly sit him for a little while because you want to keep him healthy for the playoffs. Uh, Amendola might be back, but it looks like Brady might be throwing to former Eagle Damaris Johnson in the game uh, as maybe his two or three receiver, which is kind of a problem. What would your prediction be in terms of how the game is going to go? I do think it's actually going to be closer, just because I, maybe I'm being optimistic, I think that Kelly is going to get the team to rally a bit and play a bit harder, 
And Bradford should be back this week as well, so the offense should look a little bit better. And the Eagles, off- the Eagles defense is still a very talented unit, and they've underperformed the last two weeks because, I think, of just physical fatigue. Um, but now that they've had a mini-bye week, so to speak, with the Thursday game last week, I think they should be playing a lot harder. And obviously the, the Patriots are a little, are a little under-equipped this week. So I, I do think the Eagles' defense should be able to play really well. And I'm hoping that the offense will look a lot better with Bradford back. So I think it should actually be an entertaining football game. Uh, but maybe that's <laughs> me being an optimist. I think it, if I had put the final score right now, Patriots 30, Eagles 17. I can see that. I think that that's going to be how it's going to end. And I, I do think that there's a chance it's 30 to 10 and the Patriots go up a cheap score, but I think it might be slightly closer than people expect. We're going to end sports. Uh, after one more question, we're going to switch to basketball for a second. Oh, God. So, Julia Okafor just got to spend two games by his team, although the Sixers did win they against did. the Lakers. They did. They beat the Lakers. They ruined Kobe's homecoming. They're 1-0 and when Hannibal Burris blocks them on Twitter. Yeah, that's... <laughs> um, what's your reaction to this entire Jaleel Okafor mess? And also, do you believe in Sam Hinkie? Yeah, the thing with okay, the thing with Jaleel Okafor is he's 19 years old, and I, I, we hear this excuse for NFL athletes like, "Oh, they're 21, oh, they're 20." It's like he's a 19, like I'm 19 years old. I do stupid shit all the time, and I don't have millions of dollars, <laughs> and I don't go out and party and drink and everything. Like he is a professional athlete and 19. You have to expect that there's going to be some delinquency from that. Obviously, like, obviously, I'm not encouraging him or qualifying what he's doing, but. You can't expect all these guys to just be, like, totally clean-cut right off the bat. And they got him a, uh, basically, a babysitter. I mean, they're doing the whole, like, Des Bryant thing where they're just having, like, having him accompanied for a little bit to make sure he stays out of trouble, which I think will be good for him, you know. And it's a big jump going from being a college basketball player to being a professional athlete with millions and millions of dollars. So he just needs to learn how to control himself, and I think that... Something all nineteen-year-olds go through. <laughs> so I have, I'm, I'm confident in that. And as for Hinky, I just with my limited basketball knowledge, I've been watching basketball for a year and a half now. It seems like Hinky's <laughs> philosophy is something that actually ends up working in terms of failing for a while and then stockpiling talent through the draft. And it's frustrating as a fan, obviously. It's not, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, and it, would, it works a lot better in basketball than it would in football, or it would work in, actually, I, I have no idea how it would work in baseball. But It's worked in baseball multiple times. Oh, really? I mean, the Astros made the playoffs this year after stockpiling a lot of talent, the Royals, the yeah. Rays. So I think actually in baseball it might work a little bit better because yeah. in basketball, you know, one great player really does change the complexion of a team. I mean, we've seen it with the Pelicans. Anthony yeah. Davis came in. And really changed the entire complexion of that team, even though his coach is a moron. Yeah, and even the the Knicks too with their with with uh, Chris Stapps. I mean, they were horrible last year, and they've been competitive in most of their games this year because of like an all star rookie. I think the Sixers are doing it the right way. It's frustrating, but the encouraging thing to take away from it is they've been in almost every game they've played this season, and they have a tendency to accidentally lose in the last couple minutes or so, which I don't think is. Is uh, you is think cool. they're throwing games? Yeah, absolutely. You think we? Yeah, Sixers are throwing games. I think I think basketball teams do that shit all the time. 
I don't know if I would say it was extreme throwing games. Yeah. I don't know if they, I they, they have yeah. leads in all these games and then conveniently lose them, like, right at the end of the game. All right. Um, which I think is interesting. It's, a, it's something to take note of. But the team is competitive. I think they're better than their 1-17 record would suggest. Um, but I, I want to stay confident because I am a fan of basketball, not necessarily an analyst. So I'll look that up on Snopes yeah. after we record this. So we're going to actually transition now from the sports section to the society section. Uh, so I've known you in person now about a year. And I'll say that when I first met you, uh, you were a lot more conservative politically than you are now. Like, I remember the conversations that we would have about certain topics, and they were definitely, like, a little bit different than the conversations that we've been having, I would say, the past six months, where you've definitely sort of, I've seen your stances shift a little bit, moving more over to the center and even further to the left, I would say, as well. Um, So, could you maybe just take me through sort of, like, what the past year has been like for you in terms of what really has sort of helped to shape this change in perspective for you? Yeah, I I was raised in a very conservative, not a very, well, I was raised in a conservative household. Um, I, I grew up in a neoliberal town, which is basically just a fancy way to say conservative. And I had a set of views, and I viewed myself as being a socially liberal type of person, and I thought my fiscal views were more conservative, although... You know, being 16 and 17, you don't actually know what that really means and what the the implications of that actually are. And I get to college, I get to college, and I'm at NYU for my first semester at NYU, and getting adjusted to the city, and you know, a bunch of stuff happened to me my first semester, and it really shook my world up a little bit, where I was kind of forced to reevaluate the world as I saw it, going from this really small town in Pennsylvania to this you know, to New York, uh, and reevaluate what I know about the world and what the world actually meant to me. So I opened up my mind and I wanted to challenge myself. So I started going to school. I started going to meetings for clubs at school and clubs that didn't necessarily mesh well with what I had previously believed the last, you know, the previous 18 years of my life. And I was uncomfortable to start, you know, start, but I had to realize that being uncomfortable was part of the learning process where I was opening my mind to new ideologies and new outlooks on different issues in all aspects. And it's really, and it really changed my outlook to where I wanted to work as an activist for a lot of the things that I really, really care about in what I kind of newly discovered as just this new perspective and a very, very different perspective than I held a year ago on, you know, the world, on the United States and politics and social structures and everything like that. So I think there's a couple of follow-ups from that. I'm going to start with you sort of saying your family was more conservative in terms of how they raised you. And I mean, I feel like our families definitely dictate a lot of our earlier political views. I know that I was definitely raised a certain way based on sort of what my parents raised me to leave. And now I've deviated in some ways and I agree with them stronger than ever in other ways. What would you say the mindset is of the conservatives that you know that differs the most from the liberals that you know? Well, the thing about the thing about the people I was raised by is you. I grew up in this town, this little town in Pennsylvania called New Hope, 
And New Hope is actually a, has a very, very large gay community. And because of that, there's a, it's a very pro gay town. And, but the, the thing is that it's all upper middle to upper class, uh, basically entirely white, mostly Christian population. So the, the mindset behind a lot of these people is that they are, we're not racist. You know, we don't have these issues. We don't think that there's a race issue in this country. It's just not something they're around because there's no, there's no diversity in the community. So they can just claim to have these feelings about race without actually experiencing what it means to live in a diverse community and all of the things that go along with it. And once you're exposed to those things and what those things actually mean, it makes you uncomfortable. And that's the issue with a lot of racism uh, in this country is a lot of people just don't think it, it exists because they don't see it because they're kind of shielded off from where it would happen. And that was my upbringing where I was, you know, my family told me that racism was bad, but racism didn't exist anymore, basically. And that any kind of claim to racism was just panhand. I mean, basically just people looking for handouts and that was the way I was raised, and I believed that for such a long time. And and looking back, I, you know, I'm upset with myself for believing such a thing. And getting out of New Hope, getting into New York, allowing myself to really open my eyes and read the news and hear different different people from different walks of life, um, their opinions and viewpoints on things, it really opened my eyes to like racism is very, very present, and it's very impacting to a lot of people, to most of this country, in many, many different ways. And the interesting thing about saying, and, you know, pardon me, my upbringing was like, oh, we are socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. But you learn that a lot of things that are fiscally conservative are rooted in socially conservative ideologies, which is why, you know, going back to my family, and, and it's... It's absolutely joyous having family dinners now because all they talk about is politics and talking to them about actual socially progressive things is it makes them very uncomfortable because it, it attacks all aspects of their ideology. It attacks their fiscal understanding of, of what society should be too. And it's frustrating for me to, to, to think that I was, I was, I aligned myself with a set of beliefs when now I feel completely opposite of them. So I'm going to actually ask the next question. I'm going to pose it to you, but I'm going to answer it myself first. So that way you have time to actually think about it because I definitely understand that perspective. And I feel like that there is like a moment in time, like one instance that really when you're having a major change of heart or a change of mind in something crystallizes it for you. And while you think of your own, I'm going to share sort of mine that really comes to mind. So I went to Brown, which is a very, very liberal campus. And right after I graduated in 2013, I believe the fall of 2013, New York's police commissioner, Ray Kelly, was endowed to speak at the university. And it was extremely controversial. There were a lot of protests, a lot of people who were very upset that he was coming to speak, uh, specifically a lot of students of color. And... The main argument that I kept hearing over and over again, and he ended up actually trying to speak and he got shouted off the podium, uh, and it caused a conversation on campus and a lot of anger from a lot of students who were not students of color. The main thing that students of color would use to say why they felt like he shouldn't be allowed to speak 
is that they didn't feel safe with him there because they had experienced police brutality or they had friends who had experienced police brutality. And they felt that by Brown inviting Ray Kelly to speak, Brown was legitimizing stop and frisk, which of course was a policy in New York for a long time where uh, with I think even without probable cause, people could be searched. And a lot of people of color had their lives sort of hindered because of that. And to be honest, at the time, I didn't really completely understand the ramifications of stop and frisk. I was more on the side of the students who were like, you know, I really don't believe that he's right in everything, but I feel like there's a a time and a place to have the debate. And I think that it was unfortunate that it wasn't able to be had because protesters sort of stood up. Uh, I would have preferred to be in the audience and have asked him questions and try to, like, fight him on those points. But other people decided to take it in their hands, and they decided to just not let him speak. And at the time, I had a problem with that. And it wasn't until Ferguson where my mind changed. Uh, When Ferguson happened and I saw sort of how the events unfolded, I think that there was a point when I was watching the police scanner I was watching sort of the live footage from there. The Eric Garner incident happened soon after I Can't Breathe. I really realized what those other people would have felt. I tried to put myself in their shoes and realized that, to be honest, I can never feel the way that they would feel in a situation because I do have privilege in the fact that I wouldn't have to face that problem and that it really isn't my place to sort of arbitrate what makes them feel comfortable or not. And that was a big step for me in terms of me coming around to why I feel like now protest is really important and why I am very supportive of Black Lives Matter and all the movements that are looking to ensure that the police are allowed to do their jobs but are not misusing their authority and terrorizing people of color. I'd be interested to hear if you have a similar example. If not, that's fine. We can just talk more generally. But Yeah, what happened for me was my, it kind of, my outlook on it kind of changed around uh, when Ferguson happened, when the news about Mike Brown getting killed came out and I was reading all these things about how this teenager was gunned down in the streets, possibly at execution style by a police officer for stealing from, for shoplifting. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get that through my head. I couldn't rationalize that as I wanted to rationalize that because I couldn't believe that in 2015, there would be such blatant murder and such disgustingly excessive use of force And then this backlash to his death, it was just horrible to me. And and I was like, there are awful, there's so much hate in this country and people trying to excuse murder. I mean, this is murder. And then when the protests started happening shortly after, I watched, I watched the live feeds. I followed on Twitter. I followed the police scanner. And I watched in disgust as the St. Louis Police Department used military force against peaceful protesters. And I I said, this isn't the country that I grew up learning about. This isn't, this isn't the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is, this is, this, this is a police state. This is a police state where the government is controlling 
minorities and threatening them with violence. And when people try to speak up against it, they threaten them with more violence. And I started questioning, you know, the use of, you know, military police force, the, the use of force in general by the police. And then I, I was kind of getting in my head about it. And then the Eric Gardner thing happened. And that really set into motion my feelings about all this. And I, and I said, there is, I mean, this is calculated genocide against African-Americans or against black people in this country where you have police officers who feel empowered to kill black people without consequence. I mean, you, you had, you have 12 year old Tamir Rice in a park with a toy gun and within seconds of showing up at the scene, he's gunned down by police officers. And over a year later, nothing has happened to those police officers. And I, I, I just can't let that happen as a, as a member of the, this country. And it's important to realize that as a white man, white men are the people who have the agency to make a change. Black people can protest and talk and, and protest all they want. And, and it's important for them to do so because of how much of the system is working against them. But it is the white men who are in power and have to make that change, unfortunately, because so many of them are still working against black people and against all marginalized groups. But it, it, it's important to find allies or at least convince people to, to put this change into action because there's, there's so much hate in this country and the way it manifests itself is very, very sinister, and it's important to root it out at its core, I think. I mean, do you want to talk? We can talk more about the... I, I kind of went off a little bit. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily totally agree with everything that you said, but I do think that, quite simply, there is a differing standard when you are a police officer, and I don't think that police officers are... I, see, where I disagree is I'm, I think it's a little bit unfair to say that police officers are actively, like, seeking out the instances. Well, I think that a fair thing to say, and I think the Tamir Rice case is really sort of where you made the case perfectly, is that there is a predisposition to trust somebody if they're like you. And I think that in those fight or flight situations, we're seeing that if you're a police officer, that is your instinct. And I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. I don't think that it's been addressed effectively in any police force. Well, here's here's the issue. This is where I'm talking about um, a more sinister thing, is that I think on a officer-to-officer basis... I think the main issue is how black bodies are, one, interpolated by the police, and then, two, how they are valued by the police, and both before and after these instances of brutality happen. Because we've seen in this country that police have the ability to defuse violent situations if they want to. We saw that with um, Bill and Roof. We saw that with the shooter... uh, at the Planned Parenthood recently, that if police want to defuse a violent situation, they have the opportunity to. And we're talking about armed gunmen relative to children and relative to a teenager who stole cigars or whatever. I mean, these are situations that police officers should theoretically be trained to dissipate 
but have chosen to use firearms and take life instead. And I think there is a, a lack of value being put on the black body, which needs to change. And then after these situations occur, you have the, you have the various police unions stand staunchly behind the police officers and the actions done by the police officers. And that's where a lot of the, I think that's where a lot of the evil really comes into it because you have these groups that are supporting racist actions and even in the Freddie Gray case, where he had six officers who participated in the murder of this of this Baltimore teenager, um, the only three who are likely going to end up in prison are the black police officers. So, it, when you look at how the how the system plays itself out, both before and after these instances of brutality, it seems to—I mean, it doesn't seem—it is incredibly slanted towards or it's slanted against black people. And while maybe the intentions of the individual officer changed, the value being put on black people in this country has not changed. The thing I said earlier about um, this genocide, and that's a really strong term to use, but when you look at the history of this country, this country is founded on slavery. You know, the first hundred years of this country, we had slavery. And then after this, after slavery ended, we had Jim Crow laws. And for 50 years, you had Jim Crow, or 40 years, you had Jim Crow laws. And then, you know, the 1930s, to the 1950s, you had the eugenics program. And after the eugenics program, there was a civil rights movement. You had to end segregation. And even after segregation ended and you had this movement, um, the civil rights movement, which unfortunately was um, interfered with by the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, Afterward, you still have decades and decades of incredibly violent and unpunished police brutality. So there, and then you have police brutality, and then you have things like redlining, and you have, I mean, there's so many things that are built into this country in order to work against black people. And Yeah, I definitely agree with all those things. I do think that the conversation about redlining is a little bit different than the conversation about... No, and I I totally agree with you, but I'm saying that when you look... Just like you look at the patterns of this country, and so so many of the problems that we face in this country right now stem from the racism and hatred that this country was founded on. And the way I like to look at it is it's all different heads of the same hydra, Right? And if you cut one head off, two more heads are going to grow back. And you can't just keep on cutting off heads. You need to just get it at the core. You need to get the racism out. And that, and you don't get the racism out by not talking about it. You get the racism out by directly addressing it and directly getting people out of power who are, who are looking to practice it. And I think that, like, my last question for this sort of section was going to be how can we create solutions because I'm not the kind of person who thinks – that if you see a problem, you just need to leave it alone. I think you need to like create some sort of conversation about it, a conversation that's sort of hard to do because I think that when a group's been marginalized for so long, it's sort of hard to find any common ground where that conversation can be had. I mean, we're seeing it right now. And getting it back to Black Lives Matter and specifically Black Police Brutality, I think there needs to be a stronger institutionalized training program within these police forces. And as you said, I think that... It starts from the top, where people can begin to understand, you know, just because case A and case B, you may feel like some sort of, like, certain difference, you should be treated in the same way. 
and you cannot ever resort to violence. Like, I mean, you're Israeli, your dad's Israeli. In the Israeli military, you're technically, and I'm not going to say the Israeli military always does this because the Israeli military has committed some pretty bad atrocities as well, but in theory, in the Israeli military, you are not allowed to shoot somebody unless you have told them to put their weapon down, you have told them again, please put your weapon down, you have to do it twice pointed the weapon at them and say, if you don't put your weapon down, I'm going to shoot, and then you're supposed to shoot. You're not even allowed to, like, necessarily pull your weapon and fire. Uh, We need to have that sort of caution in any situation, and I think that that's the thing that really isn't preached very well in the police force. And part of that reason is, you know, when you're in the heat of the moment, it's tough to, like, take a step back, but it's their job. They have a duty, and the fact that they're not necessarily doing that for a large percentage of the country is a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a ton of different ways to stem off that, and I think a lot of, uh, there's a separate issue that has to do with this country romanticizing violence in general. Um, but I think the main issue is, I mean, I said this before, is racism, and the way you have to stop racism or work to fight against racism is by addressing it directly. And you see this in University of Missouri, you see this at Yale, and you're seeing this across the country where students are starting to take their, take their various uncomfortabilities with racial structures in universities and speaking out against them and feeling empowered to speak out against them. And that is what is so important because it, everything starts at those microaggressions. Everything starts at those little things that kind of chip away at somebody's personal dignity because of their race. And if you let, and if people let those things slide, then they'll grow and they'll grow and they'll grow. And then country, like people in countries will feel empowered to use blatant, blatant oppression, blatant racism against you. So it's about getting it out at its core and stopping it right at the root uh, which is what you see at Missouri, which what you're seeing at universities across the country where student bodies are trying to get the people out of power who are letting these things happen because, you know, the the saying is silence is violence. If you're letting these, if you're in power and letting these things happen, you are complicit to the racism, to the violence that's going on. So they're trying to get people into power with, or get people with a voice to speak for them instead of either be silent or speak against them. And I think that is where progress is made by changing the decision makers and by also addressing even the smallest instances of uh, discrimination and racism. That's the end of the society portion. That was some really meaningful, heavy conversation. There's a lot of things we can do to make this country better, and I thank you for your perspective on all of them. And we definitely, by the way, welcome all perspectives on this show. We're going to move on to the fun portion now, the stuff portion. So, things that people may not know about Ben. Ben is an actor and a singer. And has been in many a play. Many, yes. Many a musical. Many a performance. So, what is the favorite show that you've ever been in? Oh, that's tough. And I've actually, I've been thinking about this since you sent me um, what you wanted to talk about. And I'm between two. Is that okay? That is, you know what? That That's, is totally okay. Fine. So in the same, in the same summer, actually, I was in Legally Blonde, 
Um, and the reason it was amazing because going into Legally Blonde, I was super unenthusiastic because one, I had no, I had no knowledge of the show besides what I knew of the movie. And I was a little iffy about that. And I was just totally, and I also got a part, I got the, um, the romantic lead in the, in the show, which is a role that I really never played before. I'd always kind of played bad guys and I'm a base and I just never kind of was taken to be the romantic lead. So it was this new character for me in a show I was kind of unfamiliar and a little bit uncomfortable with, but I was in this show and my best friend was playing the, the, my antagonist and another really good friend of mine was my co-star who played L. Um, and my little sister was actually in the show with me too. And uh, the, a girl I was dating at the time was also in the show. So I was kind of surrounded by people that I was really, really comfortable with and worked really well with. And it was my first time ever being in a show with my little sister. And she is so talented. So I was just great working with her as well. And the music ended, it just ended up being a really, really fun, high energy show. The director was really cool to work with. Um, it was just a, kind of like a happy go lucky experience and a nice change up from what I'm used to doing. I'm used to doing a lot more serious, heavy roles and, and those can get you down in the dumps. And while they, you know, they get all the, the limelight, it's always fun to kind of, you know, kick off your shoes and just do a really fun role and being a, being a comedy. So I really loved being in that. And then. I did the complete opposite of that. Uh, right after that show ended, I, I went into Les Mis. And um, it was funny about Les Mis was I was actually supposed to be Jean Valjean, but last second there was a director change, and the director wa- wanted, the new director wanted me to be Javert, who is the bad guy. And in itself, Les Mis is just this really grand production, but also the people I was in the show with it was just this overwhelming group of talented individuals. Uh, my best friend again was he, he played Jean Valjean. So we were actually in three straight shows where we played opposite characters of each other. The previous show before legally blonde, we were in footloose together. Uh, he was Ren and I played the reverend. Um, so we had this really good onstage chemistry together as opposites. And then on top of the, and he ended up going, he's at the Michigan acting program, which is one of the great acting programs in the country. And the actress who played Cosette, so she's on a couple episodes of Parks and Rec and she was incredible. And the guy who played Marius, um, he almost was, ended up being on the Broadway production of Newsies and it like every single lead in that show ended up in major acting programs across the country. And it was just this, I've never been surrounded by such talented people. And when you're surrounded by such talented people, it pushes you to work harder and be better in your own self. So when I, when I did my performance, I I, I don't think I'd ever acted as good as I acted in that show. And the the cool thing was at the pro, the acting program I was at Ethan Cohen's son was also at the acting program. He wasn't in the show with me, but Ethan Cohen, who, if you don't know, directed, no Country for Old Men, directed The Big Lebowski. I mean, just a really highly acclaimed, really great director. Um, he came and he saw me in Les Mis. And after the show, he introduced himself to me and told me how good he thought. I, I mean, I'm stroking my ego right here. I almost, I damn near passed out when that happened. And just that, 
that experience was so incredible. And I actually saw Les Mis, a, uh, I saw Les Mis two years later and it just didn't, it, I, it didn't, it didn't compare for me, I guess. Cause just like seeing it on Broadway just didn't compare because like being in that show is so special and, and so magical that it's, it, it's hard to recreate that kind of experience. Yeah. My brother was a theater kid. He did Les Mis. I did not do theater growing up. In retrospect, I kind of wish I did because it seems like a lot of fun and I do love to like sing and acting seems cool, but whatever. That's just how it goes. So what would be your sort of dream next role? I would, I've been, I've been wanting to play Billy Flynn from Chicago since I was like 10 years old. And the first time I saw the Chicago movie with Richard Gere and when he sang, all I care about is love. That is like one of my favorite numbers. Everything about that role is so flashy and Broadway and perfect. And I want so badly, so badly to play that. And, uh, yeah, that's, that is my, that's, that's next on my list. Cause I made it when I was very, very young, I made a list of all the dream roles I wanted to play. So Billy Flynn and Sweeney Todd are the only two I have left. Now, I don't know if this has been added to your list, but. The big new musical out in New York right now is Hamilton. Yes, yes, it is. And I know that you have listened to the entire soundtrack. Several times. (laughs) Several times. And I still need to listen to it. I was going to wait until the show, I was actually able to get a ticket to it. Then my friend saw it and said pretty much, I should just listen to the soundtrack because it's the same thing anyway. Or you'll get a similar experience. Uh, what can you tell us about this soundtrack without giving everything away? I mean, we know the story. Yeah. Right? He dies. Spoiler. Yeah. He gets shot. <laughs> yeah. If you read a history book, it, it clears a lot of every, everything up. But the music, I, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, you know, I've listened to Lin-Manuel Miranda's work before within, in, in the Heights. Um, but I didn't really know what to expect with this because it was just kind of this new, because you you have a rap you know, you have a hip hop and R&B musical about the birth of America, which is like this totally, totally strange take on, you know, really avant-garde take on everything. I was like, I don't know what to expect. And then three songs into the, into the show, I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. And the reason it's so amazing is because Lin-Manuel has this incredible attention to detail in the way that the lyrics are written and both with the rhyme schemes and the actual content of what the lyrics are saying, it's almost unmatched. You know, I've, I've, I've exposure to a lot of different kinds of musicals over the course of my life. Um, and the only other, the only other person I can think of who could capture such content in lyrics the way that Lin-Manuel has in Hamilton, it's probably Stephen Sondheim. And just the, the way that the, I mean, the efficiency at which he can tell a story and yet the poeticism of how he does it is so beautifully done. I just, I, I can't, I can listen to the same song over and over and over again in all at how it's constructed, you know, the rhyme scheme, uh, the actual music, the beat, the hook. Uh, and, and it's great for me because I'm a big big fucking dork and I love history. I'm a big history nerd and I love hip hop and I love musicals. 
So when you have these amazing raps, and they're, they're actually really good raps um, about history in a musical, I'm just like geeking out the whole time. And it's and the music is so good on its own that I have a couple songs that I actually listen to like while I work out. It's it's like that good of music. And it's just, it's really addictive and it's special. And I was talking to my, one of my musical theater teachers about it. And he said, it's really this generation's rent because what you have is you have this really new type of music getting injected into musical theater and talking about contemporary issues um, in a new kind of way or in a way that makes the viewer question how musicals should be done. And it's just the way, and it's, and like Rent was at the time, it's so perfectly executed and so perfectly put together. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, I, I haven't seen it yet, so I'm, I'm talking out of my ass just a little bit, but I've listened to the music enough and I, I'm just, I'm so excited about the experience that I've had and about and for the experience that I plan on having going to see it uh, in real life, but it's really a special piece of music. And I suggest listening. I suggest to everyone that they should listen to the, the actual album. Yeah. I think I'm going to cave and end up actually listening to it soon. I, I've been, I've been holding back because I didn't want to spoil it for myself, but I think I'm at the point now where I might just have to bite the bullet and just do it. Uh, now, one thing I was thinking about recently, and we've had disagreements about this show in the past. I don't think I like Wicked anymore after rethinking it. I not, see, I like Wicked now. That's really funny. <laughs> I, I well, okay, I don't love Wicked, but I've listened to the musical, the music enough that I've come to respect the the technical aspects of it. Like, I think it's a very technically impressive show. The you know the vocal, like it's vocally very impressive. I mean, listening to Adina Menzel do anything is impressive, but just what she was really asked to do in that show. I mean, it destroyed her voice. That show destroyed her voice. Yeah. She can't sing anymore. Yeah. Or she has to sing, uh, she has to sing an octave lower now because of some of the notes she was asked to hit in that show. Um, that's a good fact. And, uh, um, Chris, uh, who's her Kristen Chenoweth? Yeah. They don't talk anymore. They hate each other. I've heard Kristen Chenoweth to be fair. Oh yeah. Well, I've I've heard that she is a difficult, that's individual to deal with. That's the trouble with actors. We're all so dramatic. But, yeah, um, yeah I've, I've listened to it enough where I can come to appreciate it. I don't love it. Uh, it's definitely, I wouldn't put it in my, like, top ten. But I don't hate it anymore. I used to really, really dislike it. Yeah, I haven't seen any shows recently. I was thinking about it because my family loves Broadway. I've never been, like, super into it, but I'll, like, occasionally see a show. Mm-hmm. The last show that I saw was Book of Mormon, which was amazing. And I didn't spoil it for myself, and boy, I was happy that I didn't spoil it for myself, because that show is just... So good. So good. Matt and Trey are just the bomb. I don't even, I don't, the thing with, with, the thing with Book of Mormon that was so weird to me was I don't like South Park. I don't find South Park enjoyable. Really? Yeah, which is weird, right? But, um... Maybe I just can't handle all that satire over the course of 30 minutes. This has been an interesting season, too, because they've taken on political correctness, and it's like a fascinating sort of change of pace for them, and I'm not entirely sure if I agree with everything that they're saying, but I think it's definitely a brave move for them, because they're sort of like going after the people who really watch their show a lot. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I can't, I can't really speak on that too much just because I, I don't watch it enough. But I thought that the Book of Mormon was just so, so 
great. I mean, first of all, it's just such good Broadway. The, the, the actual production value of that show, you know, the, I mean, all the, like, the flashy lights and dance numbers. I mean, it was so Broadway. But then you, like, listen to the, the actual songs and the, 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 um, the story of the show, and it's very, you know, it's very them, the very Trey and Matt. And it's just hilarious, and the music is great. And oh, that, it was such a fun show. It was funny because I, I saw that with my mom. And obviously, it's like very. I mean, they say a lot of like offensive type of humor, and I was looking. I was I was crying, laughing so hard, and I was looking over at my mom a couple of times during the show, and she tried to cover her mouth because she felt really bad about <coughs> laughing. And at a certain point, my brother and I had to like during intermission. My brother and I, you know, said to my mom, "We're like everyone's laughing in the theater. It's okay to laugh." And she just wasn't. She just didn't know. She was like. She's like, I don't know, like, if it's okay to laugh at this stuff. I was like, it just, just laugh at it. It's good. It's funny. It's, it's, it, that's such a good show. Such a good show. Yeah. So definitely a really good show. And a fun fact that connects that to Hamilton. So my friend saw Hamilton this past week. Uh, guess who was playing the king? Andrew Rannells. He was guesting really? three shows only. Oh my god, I'm so mad I missed that. Because Jonathan Graff was filming, I think he was like filming Looking or something, some oh. random HBO show. So he was out, he normally plays the king. Oh, that's excellent. And so Andrew Randall's played the king, and apparently he was absolutely really? hysterical. That's amazing. So, oh well, that might not be happening I'm, I'm much longer. I'm excited Jonathan Groff, though, as the king. That's one of my favorite, he is one of my favorite numbers in the show, too. So... I, I do happen to know, we're going to end on this, that you have a really entertaining theater camp-related story with a football coach's cousin. Yeah, I, I, want to know. I, may, I may or may not have, and this is funny because this is actually before I really got into college football or like really started paying attention to college football, I may or may not have had some sort of romantic brief romantic relationship with Bo Pelini's uh, niece. So not cousin, niece. Niece, his niece. Okay. Well, so his brother, who I think also coaches at Youngston State. Wait, daughter. his daughter? Yeah. Oh, that story's even better now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I married, yeah, he, she was there. She was there for three weeks, and um, yeah, I... I, I did a thing. I'm not going to go too much into it because yeah. just to protect myself because the last person I want to piss off on this planet is Bo Pelini. Yeah, Bo or Pelini. anyone, or anyone in the in the, uh, the the sacred Pelini family. So yeah, the Pelinis know. are intense. They are a hard. Oh, I love. I family. love Bo Pelini. So yeah. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I would have wiped her up. Definitely. Text her. I was like, hey, remember that kid that you uh, may or may not have gotten with when you were 14 years old? Well, he's back. <laughs> he's back with a yeah. Bitches. He's back. So, anyway, that is actually going to conclude the first ever Hammer Time podcast. We covered a lot of ground today. Uh, I hope you liked it. Uh, definitely give us feedback. Uh, if you have any, Ben, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. So, where can the people find you? They can find me on bleedinggreennation.com. I'm doing about two to three scouting reports a week now. And you can also find me at BGNATAN on Twitter.com. Um, I had a lot of people unfollow me today, so I can I need to replenish that. Definitely. So, yeah, Ben, thanks so much for joining. Uh, 
this podcast is going to be happening every week. I still haven't settled on a specific date of posting yet, but we're going to try to make it a weekly thing. Have tons of guests. If you're interested in guesting, if you have any feedback whatsoever, feel free to shoot me a tweet at Ethan Ham or DM me. And that's it for now. Uh, hope you enjoyed, and thanks for listening, and have a good night. Shouts.